The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. Here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. And we are back to the Video Insiders. Welcome, Dror. Hi, Mark. I'm doing great uh, for another episode of uh, the Video Insiders. All excited. How about you? Hey, I am super excited. The listeners don't know necessarily how these shows are recorded. So it's actually been, uh, I think it's been a couple weeks since we recorded our last uh, episode. So it's good to be back on the microphone. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And it's always great to have uh, some uh, exciting guests who are going to talk about uh, great video technologies. Let's just get started. I would like to introduce Daniel Pizarski. Welcome, Daniel. Like you said, my name is Dan Pizarski. My title is VP of Engineering at LiveView. Uh, I am VP of Engineering for the Americas, uh, North and Latin America. Uh, I have a counterpart in Israel since the company is founded and based in Israel, uh, who's the VP of Engineering over there. And we you know, basically split responsibilities. A lot of our true hardware engineering takes place in Israel. A lot of our uh, more uh, recent efforts on like sort of cloud services have taken place uh, through the office here in the U.S. And of course, a lot of our very large customers are here in the U.S. in the U.S. broadcast industry. So I sit on these shores and, and deal with those customers and deal with some of the uh, cloud services that we build. And he works in Israel and deals with a lot of the hardware engineering, our core, quote unquote, core engineering that we do with uh, hardware encoders. LiveView is very prominent in all of the trade shows. We can never miss your booth. Always large and crowded. But uh, I, I remember when, when you started, like several years ago, uh, with uh, the promise of actually to enable uh, people to broadcast video, high quality video, from anywhere. No no satellite dish, no van, no cables. Just go on air and and uh, and be a reporter and broadcast your video high quality from from everywhere. And uh, I guess this is still the the, the main uh, business line of the company, right? That's right. So LiveView is the originator of what's now called the bonded cellular market for uh, live contribution, which as you said, largely replaced satellite trucks, largely replaced uh, microwave. It, it takes video uh, from SDI cameras or HDMI cameras and encodes it, compresses it, and transmits it over multiple IP connections at the same time. And usually those IP connections are LTE modems. Well, when the company first started, 3G modems and then 4G modems and then now LTE modems and soon to be 5G modems uh, that we transmit over. But we it will really transmit over any IP connection. It could be IP-based satellite like BGAN or over landlines. So we have, you know, a, a multitude of use cases and customers use it that way. But the kind of thing that most people know us for is the multiple cell modems in one unit, the backpack form factor. Uh, and, you know, you plug your camera in and you're transmitting from just a backpack and the camera, what used to take a, a mast and a microwave truck and, and the whole ENG crew to, to get a transmission back. Yeah, and I guess this technology change um, also triggered a change in the way, for example, that uh, news is reported or even um, sports is, is broadcast in terms of uh, uh, content uh, availability and, and reach of uh, certain stations and broadcasters. Yeah, absolutely. So the company loves to talk about the uh, kind of one of the launch use cases that we did 10 years ago with uh, during the uh, first Obama election and a transmission from a moving train 
uh, I think on, on his way to the inauguration. Uh, and so, you know, they were able to transmit with the earliest of live units. I mean, it was really at that type at that time, sort of a prototype, if you will, uh, and transmit from the moving train at full HD quality, you know, back to the, the studio and put that broadcast on air. Um, and then since then, it's just been transformative. And in, you know, many other cases, one of the most recent that we've uh, had on the news side was uh, last year in some of the strong hurricanes uh, in areas where due to damage to the roads or flooding or, or just, you know, the events that were going on, it was impossible to get a larger vehicle into the area. But people were still able to get in with live units because you can take a very small vehicle, just a normal car or SUV get out on foot, you know, walk to where you want to do the transmission from and uh, actually able still to get the transmission out despite the damage that the storm had done. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different use cases we can talk about like that where live has, as you said, really been transformative in where can I get live content from. Now, was LiveView founded to solve this initial challenge or how did, you know, how did you get uh, to where you are in terms of, uh, you know, really bringing in the field video encoding, video streaming uh, technology to sort of the masses, you know, making it accessible. That it actually was the use case that the live view was targeting. So uh, the way that my boss uh, and one of the founders of the company, Avi Cohen, tells the story is he was attending a uh, soccer game, football game, as he would say, uh, with his son and walking past the satellite trucks on the way in and just looking at these massive dishes and all of the cables run across the ground to connect to the cameras inside the stadium and, uh, you know, this incredible setup and thought to himself with this phone in his pocket. I mean, this is even a little more than 10 years ago. So at that time, not even that sophisticated phone in his pocket, but still a fairly sophisticated cell phone in his pocket and thinking to himself, there's got to be a way to reduce this, right? It can't require this level of transmission technology anymore to get a high quality signal out. And thus was born uh, cellular bonding. The idea of taking many of those connections and of course at the, in the era of 3G, that was very much required. And then as uh, cell technology has increased and the total number of connections we have to bond has reduced the latency with which we can do it has has way gone down the total bit rate which we can hit has gone way up uh, but it, it you know even in those early days with 3g if we just took enough connections eight or ten at a time and put them all together and use the aggregate bandwidth of all of them then we, you could get a, an HD quality h264 uh, stream out and basically the product that you sell is uh, the backpack with a transmitter or is it kind of a service that you provide, which is uh, combined with some, you know, cloud transcoding of the content? Uh, you know, so in the last 10 years, it's it's greatly expanded. I mean, like I said, we're, we're known for that backpack form factor. That's, uh, I think, the way a lot of people, if you've heard of Live, you think of us is, is at the as the backpack, but we've kind of expanded into many different form factors. So we've got Smaller encoders today that can fit just on a belt or even mount on the camera. Uh, we've got truck mount encoders today. If you are looking for an even larger solution, still want to do things like bond 14 modems at once, then we've got arrays that will mount on the roof of a truck or at the top of a tripod uh, and be able to transmit. We've got rack mount encoders that can go into the studio so that you can link things like your studio feed into the total cloud infrastructure the LiveView now offers. And in that cloud infrastructure, we offer management of every unit in the field. We offer distribution of video over public internet. So the same resiliency that we bring to the transmission over LTE lines, we, we leverage to transmit over 
public internet lines. And then that way, if a uh, usually, uh, in our primary example, news, if a larger news organization wants to take in feeds from their studios, take in feeds from the field itself, take in feeds from a permanent installation at like the nearby sports stadium, and then manage that through all one user interface that we offer in the cloud, uh, it, it kind of becomes one large ecosystem. So what started is just, here's the backpack, plug the camera into it, has kind of grown into many cloud services that, as you said, you know, kind of layer on top of that core transmission idea, many different form factors for the transmitters, uh, and a way to, of course, see and manage it all on one big interface. And I'm I'm really interested in the fact that you even have a solution here, uh, what is it called, LU Smart, uh, which is effectively bringing it to the mobile phone. Um, so is, is this then using the phone for the capture, um, but the transmission is through a, a bonded modem or? So the, what LU Smart does and, and our software for that is bond the two radios that are available on the phone. I which see. is the, the LTE radio and the Wi-Fi. And radio. the Wi-Fi, interesting. Mm-hmm. So now if you bring a Wi-Fi with you, you can effectively <laughs> bond two LTE two. networks using just the phone. Interesting, the the interesting, wow, wow. What is the typical uh, bandwidth or, or I guess how many modems are, um, you know, most people bonding together. Um, let's say in a, in, in kind of a, uh, obviously in a real remote area, you probably need more, but, um, you know, in a metropolitan area where you've got reasonable coverage, how many modems are needed? So our, our kind of flagship deployment in the U S is still six. Although, as you said, in a real metro area and a lot of the larger news organizations now have kind of, uh, zeroed in on four as the Mm. right number of modems Mm -hmm. that still gets you, Carrier diversity, so every single carrier available in the U.S. until you know two of them merge uh, <laughs> sure. uh, you know, to merge, yeah, it'll be three. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so that gets you all four carriers, uh, which gives you a lot of diversity in terms of who's got the best signal in the area, who's on which tower, or who's on in the case of a metro area, who's on which rooftop, um, and gives you a great signal. As you said, if you really want that go anywhere, do anything packed, then six. Uh, becomes an even better number. There's a couple advantages to that. One would be traveling outside of the metro areas and, and getting into a little bit more challenging environment. Another example would be getting into a cell-challenged environment even in a crowded area. So uh, in a in a sports arena or at a parade or something where you have 100,000 other yeah. cell phone users yeah, around you, right. then the six modems help. Uh, and then the le- one of the most recent ones uh, that we've offered is that the each modem now has two SIMs attached to it and you can electronically pick between which sim is actually driving the modem and so you can hop on a plane with the same unit that works in the u.s go anywhere in the world and then transmit using local networks in that uh location around the world and sometimes six modems will help you depending on where in the world mm. you are because you know different countries have better and worse lte coverage and when you do the modem diversity then each modem is connected to a separate carrier that's right. Well, yep. well, why don't I take like 10 SIM cards for the same carrier and bond them? So you definitely get an advantage from bonding uh, SIM cards on the same carrier. In fact, in our six modem configuration, obviously we double up on some of the carriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, AT&T would be a good example. Uh, you get an advantage to that because of the way LTE networks work. They are dividing either the total amount of frequency available or the total amount of time available on the network between every device they see in the area. So if you have two devices on the same network, you get a larger division of either time or frequency Mm -hmm. 
which which benefits you. But there's a diminishing returns to that. Ten on the same network isn't going to give you a lot, right? right? Uh, because you're still connecting to the same tower. That tower is still connected to its same backhaul. You, you haven't given yourself any diversity in terms of those components. So by connecting across different carriers, you get some diversity of you'll probably connect to a different tower. Although some carriers will, will sometimes share a tower, you'll definitely connect to a different backhaul mm-hmm. uh, back to you know the terrestrial network. So now you've got diversity of the entire path. And what's the typical bandwidth you get when you bond four or six modems together? So uh, we can do uh, certainly up to, let's say, 20 to 30 megabits per second across four LTE networks in the, in the U.S. Uh, in all but the most challenging situations. But most of our users aren't using something like 20 megabits per second because there is a factor here of uh, both reliability. You, you, your reliability goes up if you're using less bandwidth because you have a, less of a need to continue to get that high-quality bandwidth, right? If you move or the conditions change and the bandwidth were to fall from 20 to 5 megabits, then the live view unit will keep up with that by making changes to the amount of compression used or even the resolution or frame rate used, mm-hmm. but it's going to change your expectations in, in terms of the picture that you right. see. And then uh, the other reason to do it, of course, is money, cost. So while cell bandwidth is way cheaper than satellite, uh, it still has a cost associated with it. So if you're doing a type of shot that doesn't need 20 megabits, as an end user, you don't want to use that, right? You want to use four or five megabits or seven megabits, depending on the codec that we're talking about, um, and get the same high quality HD out, but just save money on the shot. So while we're capable up to 20 to 30, long story short here, while we're capable up to 20 to 30, um, more typically you see people doing like four to seven in the US because there's a very, there's a sweet spot of 720p and 1080i in there, depending again on the codec choice. And that's, you know, saves you a lot of bits in terms of uh, your bill and, it's much easier to get a reliable four megabits everywhere in the country. And so it's, you can rely on it. more. Mm-hmm. And, and you said 1080i, not 1080p. And again, is that a bandwidth choice or is that because of the networks that the signal is being ultimately distributed to? That's, that's really a reflection of our customers. So LiveView uh, has its largest presence in the news gathering field where almost every major news gathering organization on the planet uses some level of, of LiveView technology. Yeah. And they're very much standardized on 1080i still, right? Uh, we actually have other lines of business, uh, in fact, one that I kind of uh, personally manage that are much more focused on things like streaming to Facebook and YouTube. And they all care about 1080p, which we're capable of, 1080p, sure. 60 or, or true HD. Sure. You just don't see it much in, in broadcasters, although we see a, a growing amount of it in broadcasters, 1080p, 60. But it's 1080i still kind of rules the, the roost when it comes to broadcasters. Yeah. Well, one of the things that that we're very interested in, not only, uh, you know, Dror and I in terms of what we do uh, during our day job at Beamer, um, but, you know, also our listeners, many of them are encoding engineers and are involved in codec choices and codec selection. And I know that LiveView really has been at the forefront of HEVC. And so I thought it would be um, good to uh, share with us what that, you know, what that adoption cycle looked like. Yeah. Tell us about HEVC, you know, your, um, your adoption and, you know, maybe some things you learned. Yeah, absolutely. So we were, of course, always very interested in higher compression, higher compression at the same quality. Uh, so we had tracked HEVC through its initial development with the MPEG group, uh, and for us specifically, 
tracked its development when it comes to the silicon vendors, because all, most of our encoders are based on hardware encoders, and we could talk about why in a, in a second. Uh, so it was very important to us not just, hey, can I do this on the biggest, most powerful Intel processor out there or on a GPU, but can I do it on some sort of uh, system on a chip or FPGA-style uh, encoder? And HEVC definitely got there where some of the other codec choices out there that really from a pure codec choice standpoint, had some very great attributes. You know, one example might be VP9, you know, in terms of complexity of the codec versus quality, you know, has has some some very nice trade-offs there, but just never got the silicon adoption that something like HEVC did. Uh, So we had this high interest in, can we do better quality in the same bits? Can we do the same quality in in even less bits for the reasons I just previously outlined, right? It's going to save all of our customers money or allow them to do way more broadcast for the same amount of money that it's costing them today when it comes to the uh, cellular networks, if we could do HD at four megabits instead of seven megabits, or we could do 720p at, you know, even two or three megabits uh, where we might be using five megabits today. Uh, So we did end up launching a product in 2018 that was a hardware-based HEVC encoder uh, initially in our flagship form factor, which is that six modem backpack unit. And then uh, in the very end of 2018 in a kind of more belt pack or camera mount style uh, sized unit, both of which are HEVC capable. And we, you know, we had a an initial idea of this is going to be really powerful and this is going to be popular, but you're never, that's always sort of an assumption until that product hits the market, right? You've got to yeah. really see what the, the actual adoption is. And of course it w- required a, a changeover for a lot of our customers in terms of the units and in some cases the the server that was decoding it. Although one of the nice things we found about HEVC was that the decode complexity really wasn't very much higher than H.264, really only the encode complexity was. Um, so we, we you know, thought we would see a high adoption, but we weren't 100% sure of that until it actually occurred. And we were very pleased to see that over the course of 2018, uh, I think in our State of Live report, we reported on 2.2 million hours of uh, live transmissions done over live view units, and 25% of that by the end of 18, what 2018 was in HEVC versus H.264. So I think in 2019 we expect to see that even, you know, over 50% over half of the those total yeah. transmissions. Wow, that, that's very impressive. I mean, it's it's larger than the adoption, obviously, in the distribution market, and uh, the uh, and the advantages are also uh, obvious, but it's. Uh, what's interesting to me is if if you know whether uh, when your customers switch to HEVC, do you do they use uh, the um, the the improved codec to lower their uh, bitrate and keep the same quality as they had with H two six four, or uh, do they use it to uh, use the same bandwidth as H two six four but improve the quality of their broadcast? So it, for us, it's largely been the former. They were interested in doing the same quality they do today, but with less bits. And that's a, a call savings for them. Uh, it, and it means that they then, therefore, in the same budget can do way more transmissions, which you know, seems to be something our customers are very interested in. News, sports, uh, you know, both have kind of an interest in, can we do even more content? Uh, we've got a handful of customers, especially on the sports side, uh, that used it to do higher quality uh, all the way up to 4K. So the when we launched the HEVC product, that was also our first product that was 4K capable. 4K transmission over cells, um, you know, not just over 
like a hundred megabit drop or something. And so we have we've got a nice little kernel of of customers doing 4K and doing 1080p 60, uh, you know, at reasonable bit rates, but trying to boost their quality all the way to the highest that they can reach in the bits that are available. And no surprise, those are a lot of sports customers that have a vested interest in that very high quality. But a lot of the news customers, yeah, the the option that you could either do it in less budget or do twice the amount of transmissions in the same budget you were spending today, that's huge for them. Mm -hmm. But by the way, for the transmission protocol, when you're doing the contribution, are you using some uh, proprietary protocol or something standard like uh, TS or, or HLS? It is our uh, proprietary protocol. Uh, you know, it, it, our protocol has a lot in common with other forms of, I guess, what are kind of generally classified as reliable UDP protocols. So it's UDP based, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. has things like forward error correction, um, re, you know, uh, verification, transmission verification in groups, not packet by packet the way TCP works, uh, and then resends if you've set your latency. So one, one of the things the end user can kind of dial in on their live view in terms of what they're willing to accept is the latency. So I, this is the type of transmission that it must be very low latency because I'm doing talkback or an interview, or this is the type of transmission that I can tolerate a little higher latency. The end user actually dials that in for us, and then we can make different decisions on the reliability based on how much latency we have. So in our protocol, we've got built-in resends, again, forward error correction, um, and the, the verification of, of packet arrival. So there's a feedback loop coming from whatever's receiving our protocol back to the encoder, and it's constantly informing it of how things are going. This many packets were dropped. I recovered this many from forward error correction. I need you to slow down on the bit rate because something's changed in the networks in between us that's causing... You know, either higher packet loss or higher latency uh, or lower bandwidth uh, parameters, and then the encoder re- reacts to that. So that is, that is all based on our protocol. We internally call LRT, Live View Reliable Transport, uh, which all of our products use. Mm-hmm. And are you looking into standardizing it uh, with the new stuff, you know, like SRT or RIST? It's definitely on our radar. Uh, you know, um, we have been watching the adoption of SRT very closely and, and interested, uh, excited to see kind of where it's going. Uh, we wrist is even, I think a little newer than that and something that we've, you know, looked at closely. And I think wrist clearly even has ambitions towards bonding as being one part of that protocol. So some of these protocols have existed before, maybe even in the timeline of uh, where live has been around like the last 10 years, uh, but m- not many of them include bonding, right? So uh, that's the one part. There, well, I shouldn't say the one part. There, it's one of a few parts that's over and above many of the protocols that we see out there, even like SRT today, which doesn't yet support bonding. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looks like RIST has ambitions to that. So we're watching that very closely and, and interested to see. And I think we've got an interest in seeing uh, you know, some standardization in that space for sure. For us, it's nice because for the most part, it's a very closed ecosystem. You know, you're using your live view unit in the field and you're coming back to your live view uh, decode gear and you're, you're interacting with live view cloud. And there's not, our customers aren't uh, necessarily driving us towards, Hey, I need something outside of the, to interact with that ecosystem. Uh, that's not already going to use some protocol that's we already can uh, repackage to very easily like HLS or RTMP or something like that. But, you know, we're, we're always interested to see, 
where the standardization goes, it certainly looks like uh, something's going to have to replace RTMP in the field since RTMP doesn't have support for HEVC or other new codecs. And so Mm -hmm. as we watch things like AV1 and uh, HEVC get adoption in, in other parts of the industry besides our little corner of contribution, then we think, all right, you know, something's going to have to replace RTMP, and that something could be SRT, uh, could also be MPEG dash, could also be HLS, and you know, we're interested to see where that goes. That's that's definitely one of the areas that'll probably, in my personal opinion, drive it to us the fastest to say, you know, wh- what do these new protocols uh, offer, and where does it interact with our current LRT? Is it always a repackagization step, or is there somewhere where we might natively use a protocol like that? So Dan, you mentioned uh, AV1, and and I have to ask, um, since you are silicon based, what are you hearing about AV1 adoption, if any anything, in terms of that being real and viable for you guys? So it it seems like uh, the proponents of AV1 understand that one of the things that held uh, the original. Uh, VP codex from from Google after their onto acquisition back was the lack of silicon adoption. Uh, there was a lot of decode uh, silicon available, but not much encode silicon available at all. Uh, and so it looks like the Alliance for Open Media has kind of gone after that specifically to say we're going to get the silicon vendors, we're going to get them on board, and they're going to commit to building encode chips. They're not available yet. We would definitely be testing them if they were available, but we we hear a lot of promises that they're definitely going to be available. And in fact, I uh, was just recently speaking to somebody at um, Twitch who, uh, you know, just as a kind of fun example, is now the third largest source of traffic on the internet. Uh, and, the, you know, so they have an interest in lowering the total number of bits they're using, and they're uh, on the Alliance for uh, Open Media board. And they were saying, you, you know, we were having almost the same conversation. Well, we, we care a lot about Silicon and they were saying, absolutely. There's going to be AV1 support on Silicon. So we're very excited to see that when it arrives. Yeah. You know, maybe you can share and and we touched on this, but maybe you can summarize or even give some new uh, insights into the workflows that your products are enabling. And um, just, you know, where you see the future of live, uh, video uh, transmission and, and distribution uh, going, and you can answer that from a technology perspective, from a you know from business model, kind of whatever angle. It's purposefully a very open ended question, but you know, talk to us uh, just just about some of the workflows, and then you know where the future is headed for live. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think I'll give it uh, an answer in kind of two current use case examples that fall a little bit outside of our traditional, again, ENG broadcast customers. And the, I only say that because I think probably your audience knows very well that ENG model, right? You're covering live news and you've deployed something of a crew, even if that crew's gotten smaller over the years, to cover that live news and you're transmitting that back to a studio uh, where it's going to get mixed into a larger program and things like graphics added to it and, uh, you know, cut back to the anchor at the desk or, or be part of a picture in picture kind of display. I think all of us, you know, in the, in the broadcast world probably understand those kind of workflows, at least on the surface. And so where live fits into that makes a lot of sense. I, I'll talk about, I think, you know, what hopefully are sort of new ideas in terms of live. One of which is on the sports side, 
where uh, our gear is increasingly used to be able to do live transmission from actually inside the sport. So one example would be the Cape Epic uh, bike race that takes place in South Africa every year. Another example would be uh, Spartan races, if you've ever watched one, which is a you know a long run obstacle course race. Uh, and I think the example, the, the project we went out on, I want to say was either Arizona or Colorado, where they were out on, a, on uh, an obstacle course field doing the race. And what they do is they embed live cameras right into the race. So somebody, either one of the actual contestants or somebody that's just acting as a cameraman, but a, a very athletic cameraman, uh, you know, is, is wearing something like a GoPro uh, and has a live view transmission uh, pack on their belt. And they're running right in the obstacle race along with the contestants or they're biking along with the uh, racers in the Cape Epic. And you're able to transmit right back from the actual uh, races that's going on and then mix that in, of course, with more traditional shots of commentators or a you know, wide shot of, of the whole race. And so that's something that uh, we've seen a, a big uptake on in, in the sports side and a lot of interest in. And it's only possible when you the unit is small enough, light enough, but still reliable enough that you can literally wear it on a belt and not slow somebody down too much so that they can still participate in the uh, activity. That's one example. Another one, uh, when we talk about that kind of transmit directly to the cloud is all of the live that's being done on platforms like Twitch, uh, which, you know, if any, it, maybe some of your listeners aren't uh, familiar with, but you might think of as like a primarily video gaming platform, and it is, uh, but there's a lot of growing content on there that falls into this category called IRL or in real life, where sort of similar to the sports example, you're wearing a body-worn camera um, or you're carrying a camera around on a, a monopod, but you're transmitting all the time while you... Uh, participate in in life. So it might be, uh, you know, touring a uh, what to a lot of uh, people in the United States seems like an exotic locale like Thailand or Tokyo. uh, And you're, you know, touring either the very traditional tourist spots or you're going to the restaurants or you're doing something adventurous. Bungee jumping was one example that people used our units for. Uh, Hang gliding was another um, where they're transmitting live you know, directly from this hang glider uh, as and not as part of a sort of, if you're familiar with the kind of live content on YouTube or on Twitch, it has a very different look and feel than a traditional TV broadcast. So it might be like a two-hour broadcast where it's all of the build-up to, are we really going to do this? And I can't believe we're going to go hang gliding. And where do we have to go to, you know, get the instructions on it and meet the instructor? And you get to see all those parts, almost like a reality show, and then uh, do the actual event. So we had a number of IRL streamers on Twitch use our gear to do bungee jumping, hang gliding, uh, just to do exploration in these cities. And it's a very, from a broadcast perspective, has the most in common with reality programming, but it's a very different uh, even than that uh, style of programming. And again, I think is really enabled by the idea of I can reliably go live for four hours at a time, eight hours at a time, 12 hours at a time with this gear that's not possible with, for instance, just a cell phone on its own because the connection is just not that reliable to hold a stream for that long. The battery's not going to last that long. The phone itself is going to overheat. It's not designed to do video transmission for that long. So by enabling the idea of, hey, this weighs just enough where it's it's not a burden to carry it around, even if I'm walking around the city all day and I can uh, keep transmitting the whole time, enables that new form of content. 
That's really interesting. I mean, the technology enabling new kinds of entertainment and uh, kind of mixing um, existing paradigms such as, you know, Twitch is many for e-gaming and, you know, YouTube and Facebook let you go live. Uh, and then you want the real high quality like you have in a, in a studio broadcast and, you know, combining all this together into some experience that is between kind of a sports game or reality show or kind of, uh, you know, vidcast. Um, I, I think it's really, it's really fascinating. And, you know, we saw the, the rise of e-gaming from a market that was nothing to something that's really huge. And as you said, which is now the third largest broadcaster on, on the internet in terms of bandwidth. Um, so I can just imagine that, um, you know, this type of technology can bring new content and new experiences that we don't even um, imagine today. And people will be hooked on watching it because, you know, I guess some people are already tired from traditional TVs, you know, and regular formats and, you know, documentaries, soap operas, um, thrillers, that type of thing, and are looking for uh, for new stuff. And uh, it's really exciting that, uh, you know, such technology can really enable it. So thanks, Dan, really for... Um, for sharing the live view story and uh, your experience and, and the workflow. I think it was very interesting to our listeners. Thanks for joining us on the Video Insiders. It's great to have you. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. And for all the listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. We would love to have you come on as well. So just send us an email at thevideoinsiders at Beamer, B-E-A-M-R.com. And we can chat with you, find out what you want to talk about, and we'll get you scheduled. All right. Until next time, have an awesome day, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H.264 transcoding every month.